Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer, sorry, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Amen. Chapter 41 and verse 1. After two whole years, 
Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Then Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they'd eaten them, no one would have known that they'd eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, weathered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in mar marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands. 
but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to, the, said to all the Egyptians, go to Pharaoh, what he says to do, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we think about it together, let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. And we ask this evening that you would help us all, that you would help me to communicate your truth clearly, and that you would help us all to know and to love you more as we listen, that each of us would look more and more like the Lord Jesus. And we ask these things for his sake. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you a question. Is God really in control all of the time? Is God really in control all of the time? It's a question that I guess each of us might ask ourselves from time to time. Perhaps you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And this question is one of the reasons why. The God of the Bible can't really be in control all of the time. He can't really be trusted for all that he might claim to be in control. And I know that's true given how chaotic the world around me is. And even for those of us who are Christians, we might know the answer that we're meant to give to the question. But I wonder how many of us can always answer it with absolute confidence. Because the world around us does often feel pretty chaotic, doesn't it? Take a moment and think about the current political situation in our country. We don't know who the Prime Minister of Great Britain will be by the end of next month. It's pretty uncertain, isn't it? We aren't sure whether what will happen in our relationship with the EU will be sorted out by the end of this year, whether we'll still be in We'll be out or we'll still be shaking it all about. And the problem isn't just that the flow of world events feels a bit random. It isn't just that the flow of world events feels uncertain. The problem is that situations actually seem to be running counter to God's revealed will for the world, don't they? So, for example, you try making a comparison of the number of Bible-believing Christians in Scotland today with the number 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. What possible reason would God have for letting that decline happen? Isn't that against his best interests? And while the question has a national and a global dimension to it, it also has an acutely personal dimension to it, doesn't it? When the pressure from the situation we find ourselves in at work perhaps through no fault of our own, seems just unbearable. When the pressure to find work at all seems unbearable, the stress of navigating family conflict or conflict with friends, 
well, it feels absolutely beyond us. And so amidst the chaos, when the evidence seems to suggest that he isn't, is God really in control all of the time? Or instead, is he just waiting to see how everything comes out in the wash? We can think that's how God works, can't we? That he kind of maybe paints a big rough outline. We'll be charitable to God. He paints a rough outline of how things are to go in history, but he kind of lets the details, the bits in the middle, they handle themselves. And actually, that's one conclusion we might be tempted to draw from the life of Joseph. Because it's fairly obvious in the passage we read last week and the passages we've read this evening that Joseph had a rocky few years. He was sold into slavery in chapter 37. And although we read things seeming to work out okay in the end in, verse, in chapter 41, that doesn't happen overnight. Thirteen years elapse between chapter 37 and chapter 41. Thirteen years. And the thirteen years aren't exactly a walk in the park. Remember last week in chapter 39, he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. And he was thrown into an Egyptian prison. And that's where he still is when we join the story again tonight in chapter 40. And so we might think, and and perhaps even Joseph might have thought, God can't really be in control of all this detail. It all seems so random, so chaotic. Stuff seems to take so long to work itself out. But by the end of chapter 41, well, maybe God is in control. Joseph's prime minister of Egypt. He's married with two children. He's flying high. Things are back on track and God's back at the wheel. But the surprise we'll see together this evening is that even when this evidence might suggest otherwise, in Joseph's life and in our lives, God is still in control. That's what we're going to think about under our first point this evening. You hopefully received one of the service sheets as you came in this evening. There are three headings on the back of that you might find helpful to have open in front of you as we go along. Firstly, God knows and controls the future, so don't panic. Now, there are a number of different aspects of chapters 40 and 41 that show God's control of all of the details But maybe one of the clearest aspects is the dreams. Now, dreams are an important part of the narrative of Joseph's life, and you might have noticed that they dominate chapters 40 and 41. So firstly, have a look back at chapter 40, at the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. We see the cupbearer, the baker, and Joseph all chatting over their morning cocoa pops in verse 7. When in verse 8, we read this, they said to Joseph, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And they do so, and Joseph interprets the dreams, and by the end of chapter 40, things turn out just as Joseph had interpreted What's the point? Well, through a dream, through its interpretation, God has revealed what's going to happen. Now, that all might seem incidental to the story until we read on to chapter 41, 
when the same thing happens again. This time, both of the dreams are from the same person, from Pharaoh. 41 verse 8, we're told that none of the land of Egypt is able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. After being prompted by his cupbearer, Pharaoh asks Joseph for an interpretation until in chapter 41 verse 15, we read this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. And I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And as things unfold over the rest of the chapter, we see that that's exactly what he does. And the point is not that Joseph has a knack for interpreting dreams, that he's a particularly talented individual in that way, or that it's a lucky guess. On both occasions, in both dreams, Joseph is really clear that the dreams and their interpretation belong to God. And the point is that God knows what's going to happen, both on a micro level in the lives of the baker and the cupbearer, and on a macro, big picture level, seven years of global plenty, seven years of global famine. But things go even further than that, don't they? It isn't just that God knows what's going to happen. I guess that might be a comfort in one sense. But the text goes further than that. Because in chapter 41, Joseph's clear that God isn't just knowing what's going to happen, but that he's in control of what's going to happen. I wonder if you noticed that. Look down again at chapter 41, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Pretty much the same thing repeated in verse 28. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And in case we've missed the point, to triple underline it in verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Not only does God know what's going to happen, he's the one who's pulling the strings. And the main point is that God knows and controls the future, even during a long and winding road, when it sometimes feels like he doesn't. And what does that mean for any of us today? Well, last week in chapter 39, we thought about a big principle that even when he was in prison, God was with Joseph. That phrase is repeated through chapter 39. If you were here, whether Joseph was doing well in Potiphar's house, whether he was languishing in prison, the phrase that's used four times is the Lord was with Joseph. And I hope that was a comfort to you if you're a Christian. The Lord cares for you and the Lord's with you no matter what your circumstances. But it still leaves us with a question, the question that we opened with this evening. See, it's comforting to know that God's with me. It's great to know that he cares for me. But when the rubber hits the road, is he really in control? Or is he just waiting to see how things come out in the wash? Because sometimes... Well, the evidence suggests the latter. 
in Joseph's life, the evidence seemed to suggest the latter. But what we see in the detail of Genesis 40 and 41 is not God drawing a big outline and letting the details fill themselves in. He knows everything that's going to happen in Joseph's life, and he's the one who's bringing it about. And Joseph's God is our God. So even when life does feel like one knock after the next, when it looks like God's taken his hand off the wheel, and if we're honest, in the chaos of life, it can sometimes feel exactly like that's just what's happened. If we're Christians, God is with us, and he knows and controls the future, even the details. So, Christian, don't panic. Ask for his help, yes. Cry out to him to act, yes. But don't panic. Now, that does leave us with other questions, doesn't it? See, if God cares for me, and if he can do something to get me out of the mess that I'm in, then why doesn't he? Why doesn't he act? And the truth is, we don't actually get an answer to the question, why, that we can cut and paste from Joseph's situation to ours. Certainly not for why it takes so long to get from chapter 37 to chapter 41. There's no pat answer to the question of why. And worse than that, perhaps, God doesn't even promise to make things work out okay for us in the end, like things work out for Joseph. You might hear some sermons suggesting that that's what's going to happen in your life, that if you stick it out with God, then, well, things will come all right in the end. We're not promised that in this life by God. It's really important that we keep that in mind. All we know from Joseph's life is that God is with Joseph in his suffering and his waiting, and that God is absolutely in control. So even when you don't understand what he's doing, even when you can't understand why he's taking so long to do it, he does care for you, and he is in control. And that's our first point this evening. It's the main point of these two chapters, I think. God really is in control of the details and the big picture. But while that is the main point of the chapters, in some ways that makes what happens a little bit confusing and perhaps a bit surprising. I wonder if you noticed the surprise as we read these chapters a few minutes ago. We'll look at that together under our second heading. God knows and controls the future, so don't be passive. See, in chapter 40, verse 13, we've already seen Joseph interpreting the dreams, which he's already said is God's doing. But then just look down to 40, verse 14. Joseph says this, Only remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. So we know that God gave Joseph the interpretation of the dream. But in verse 14, Joseph goes off script, doesn't he? He asks the cupbearer to remember him when he gets out of prison. And actually, that that doesn't even happen, at least not immediately. 
We read in 41, verse 1, that it's two years down the track before the cupbearer remembers Joseph to Pharaoh. And again, that might seem incidental that, that Joseph's acting, that he's not just sitting on his hands. But we know it's an important detail because, again, we see the same pattern repeating itself in chapter 41. And in fact, it gets even more audacious in some ways in chapter 41. Again, look down to 41, verse 32. Joseph is clear that Pharaoh having the same dream twice means that God is absolutely in control of what is going to happen, that God is making it happen. And then look what Joseph says, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And what he does over the next few verses is propose a new Egyptian tax policy to prepare for the seven years of famine. Now, all God's told Joseph is what the dream meant. There's going to be seven good years, seven bad years. And yet by verse 33, we basically have Joseph making a pitch for the job of prime minister of Egypt. And remember, this is the guy who's been in prison this morning. Got a bit of a brass neck on him, doesn't he? Now, given how strongly these chapters make the case for God's control, isn't that a bit surprising that Joseph would be quite that bold? Now, we do need to be careful when we come to applying this kind of principle to ourselves. Again, we could look at Joseph's life and conclude that the call to all faithful believers is to be gung-ho, like Joseph was. The application isn't quite as simple as that. But it is worth paying attention to because it gives us a helpful corrective as Christians. See, hopefully none of us will find ourselves in exactly Joseph's situation in the near future, wrongly imprisoned. And nor will we be pitching for the job of prime minister anytime soon, although I'm told there's a vacancy arising, so if anyone fancies it, it's worth a punt. But the relationship between God's control and our action is one that gets lots of Christians into a bit of a muddle, isn't it? I've spoken to a number of different people around Chalmers over the past few weeks who are currently facing big life decisions. Decisions about what to study and where to study it. Decisions about jobs and where to live and to work. And wonderfully, it's been really encouraging actually, each of the people I've spoken to have expressed a sense that God is in control, that he's sovereign over world events, but he's also providentially in control of their own lives. And that's a great thing, it's a wonderful thing, an encouragement to me certainly. But does that mean that you should sit tight and wait for things to fall into your lap? Well, no. That isn't how biblical wisdom works. And as we see in Genesis 40 and 41, that isn't how God works. You're right to pray and ask God for his guidance. You're right to seek to honor him and serve him in all that you do. And when you've done all of that, sometimes you're right to stick your neck out, to take action, to actually do something. If you're standing at a fork in the road, you've prayed and you've sought godly counsel on the issue, all I really think this is giving us here tonight 
is not to let our view of God's control over all things cripple us when it comes to living our lives, to persuade us that we should just sit tight and wait for the right thing to fall into our laps. That might happen, but it just as well might not. And I hope that's a help to some of those who are facing big life decisions at the moment, not to feel completely crippled by the the view of God's sovereignty as control over all things. God's in control in Genesis 40 and 41, which means Joseph needn't panic, but it also means he needn't be passive. Those are our first two points this evening. But while all of that's true in a general sense, God is in control of the world. He's in control of our lives, even when it looks as though he might not be. There's also a more specific application of the life of Joseph to us today. Because in Genesis, Joseph doesn't just function as a faithful believer for us to learn from. He's also a picture. He's a, a forerunner of someone much greater than himself. And we'll see that in our final point this evening. Point three, God's plan is to bless the nations through his rescuer. So don't panic and don't be passive. Now, we were given a sign that Joseph isn't quite like any other faithful believer back in chapter 37. If you were here for that, Joseph had a dream, remember, that all of his brothers would one day bow down to him. And it got him into hot water with his brothers. And it's actually why he ends up in Egypt in the first place. And in chapter 41, we start to see how that might come about. Joseph has this meteoric rise from prison to prime minister over the course of a few hours. But Joseph's life, as much as the musical might want to persuade us such, it isn't just an inspirational rags-to-riches story. There's more to it than that. Because in chapter 41, after the seven years of plenty... Famine strikes. And it doesn't just strike Egypt. It strikes the whole earth. And actually, the situation is pretty desperate. If you look down to the end of verse 31, all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. There's a famine, not just in Egypt, but across the whole earth. Why is that important? Well, it's important because of the role that Joseph ends up playing in the famine. Look on to the end of the chapter, verses 56 and 57. When the famine had spread over all the land, this terrible, terrible famine, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. See, Joseph becomes more than just a ruler over Egypt. He becomes a mediator of blessing to the whole earth. Now, that might ring some bells with some of us. It might ring some bells with what's come before in Genesis. 
Actually, right back in chapter, two, uh, chapter 22 of Genesis, God had promised Joseph's great-grandfather that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his descendants. And that promise is repeated by Joseph's father, Jacob, in chapter 32. And here in Genesis 41, that's exactly what Joseph ends up doing. Famine is an absolute death sentence. It's really bleak. That's the picture that we're painted. But Joseph stands between the people and the famine. He becomes a mediator of blessing. He becomes a rescuer. Now, why is that relevant to us well, again, if you've been here over previous Sundays, we've seen each week that Joseph is a staging point. His life is helpful for us to study in itself, but he's also a signpost rather than a destination. Because all of God's promises to Abraham are not fulfilled in Joseph's life. Joseph points towards another rescuer one who would bring blessing to the nations, one who would save them from certain destruction. Joseph points us to Jesus. Now, if you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, then please do listen up for a few moments. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just an inspirational moral leader. He is God's chosen, appointed rescuer. See, in Genesis, the picture of a worldwide famine is a really emotive one, isn't it? It's desperate. It's bleak. But it's a fitting picture. It illustrates the seriousness of the situation in Egypt. And it illustrates the seriousness of our situation, the reality of our need for rescue. See, the teaching of the whole Bible, the thread of the whole Bible is that each of us face a destruction no less bleak than the destruction and famine in Genesis 41. And that we need to be rescued from that destruction, from that spiritual famine, if you like. And we'll think about that. We'll think about exactly how that worked in a few minutes' time as we take communion together we take bread and wine together. But for now, all I want to say is that in Genesis, the whole world is in dire need of a rescue. And today, the whole world is in dire need of a rescue. And today, you are in need of a rescue. And Jesus is God's appointed rescuer. It's right at the heart of the Christian faith. It's a rescue story. You want to know more about that? Please do speak to me. Speak to the person who brought you along tonight. We would really love to talk to you about that if you've never thought about it before. But what about those of us who have already received that rescue? How does this apply to the rest of us? <clears throat> we know that Jesus' death and resurrection opened a way for anyone from anywhere in the world, to be rescued. Rescued from judgment, from spiritual famine. And God is unstoppably committed to the message of that rescue reaching to the ends of the earth. 
And we saw that last term when we studied Acts together, didn't we? And we also saw what it meant for us as Christians. Remember that heartbeat all the way through the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As Christians, we are tasked with taking the message of God's gracious provision to the whole earth, not least to our own country. And that means that if you look down at points one and two on your service sheet, we can sharpen our application of those even further. Because God's control of all things means that we don't need to panic no matter what our life circumstances. But I mentioned earlier that something that might cause us to panic is the spiritual state of Scotland and the world around us. We might look at Scotland and think, God, what are you doing? I wonder if you ever feel like that. When you feel increasingly like a fringe movement as a Christian in Scotland, that can lead to discouragement, can lead to anxiety, and it can lead to a sense of panic. God, what are you doing? And so we might wonder whether God really is in control or whether he's just waiting to see how things come out in the wash for Scotland. Genesis 40 and 41 show us that he is absolutely in control and in a very particular way, he is committed to blessing the nations through his chosen rescuer. Even when it doesn't look like it. Now, none of that means that God's going to bring about some kind of revival in Scotland. He might. He might not. But it does mean that when we think about the state of the church in Scotland, that we're right to feel sad. We're right to mourn. But we don't need to panic. And I hope that is an encouragement to you this evening as you reflect on the spiritual landscape of Scotland. For those of us who feel that very acutely, I know that I certainly do, often feel quite discouraged. And it's wonderful to know that Joseph's God is my God and that he has not left us. And secondly, God's sovereignty is no reason for us to be passive. Because the truth is that you and I are unable to make anyone trust in Jesus. That Chalmers Church, we are unable to make anyone trust in Jesus. No matter how compelling our arguments are, how slick the Vision of Isaiah event is, how warm and loving our community is, we cannot make anyone trust in Jesus. That is God's work, not ours. So should we bother running the Vision of Isaiah event? Should we bother telling our friends about Jesus? Well, Joseph's clear that God is in control, but he still sticks his neck out, doesn't he? And that principle still applies to our role as messengers, bringing news of God's blessing to the whole earth. If we were to take Genesis seriously, if we are to take Acts seriously, if we are to take God seriously, then we trust in God's control and we stick our necks out for Jesus. Now that might mean that we actually take that one step forward in evangelism that we've been speaking about so often over the past year. 
that we actually speak to that friend about Jesus, that we actually ask them if they'll read the Bible with us. It feels risky. You might feel anxious that you're not going to be able to answer their questions, but God is in control. So tell them about Jesus. Or as a church family, as we plant a church in the southwest of the city, think of all the risks that that involves. Human cost, financial cost. In some ways, it's a really risky thing to do. And yet we know that God is in control of all things. We know that he longs for the good news of his rescue to go to the nations, not least to the southwest of Edinburgh. And so as we either go with the plant or we send the plant, with all the uncertainty that entails, we don't need to be anxious. And we can and should be sticking our necks out. Now as we close, let's remember that if you are a Christian, you're a recipient of that gracious provision. He has acted decisively in the person of Jesus to rescue you and to rescue me. We'll remember that and we'll give thanks for that rescue in just a few moments as we celebrate communion together. But before we do that, let me pray. Let's pray together. The thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are in control, that nothing happens that you didn't first know about, and in fact that nothing happens that's beyond your control. We acknowledge this evening that for many of us that leaves us with questions of why, why you won't act to take away our affliction, why you won't act to make things easier. And yet even though you don't give us pat answers to that question, we know that you are with us. We know that you do care for us. And we know that you are sovereign and you're king of all things. And so we ask this evening that you would help us not to panic, not to be anxious, but to trust in your control over all things. And Father, we pray too that that assurance of your kingship, of your control, wouldn't lead us to being passive, but that we'd be bold in our service of you, not least as we seek to tell the people around us about your chosen appointed rescuer, the Lord Jesus. And most of all, Father, we thank you so much for your gracious provision for sending us our rescuer, for sending us the bread of life, Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory. Amen.